tell you my voice is holding on by a thread this morning, so you can pray that it be sustained through the sermon. That would be great, um, and I trust that um, that God will sustain. So uh, <clears throat> let's turn in our Bibles or to in the bulletin to the text for this morning. We'll read uh, Acts twenty thirteen through thirty eight. And I'll be preaching on 13 through 21 this morning, but this is the uh, Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders, so I think it'd be good to read the whole thing in context. So um, before we read the text, let's pray. Our Father, we need you, and our children and their children need you. So we ask you to do the work of establishing your people firmly here in this place by your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be ones who pass on the glory of our God to the coming generations. Will you grow us up in you even one step further into maturity so that when people see us, they see more and more a reflection of Christ and are compelled to follow. And may your word and spirit work effectively in the hearts and minds of your people in this day. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Acts 20:13 through 38. But going ahead of the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, And the next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he ordained, obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from 
among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And this is God's holy word. Remember when I was younger, being told at various points, I think this is a pretty common thing that young people hear, is that you need to have heroes. You need to have people to look up to. At the time, for me, sports was important, and uh, particularly basketball. And so, of course, my options were necessarily limited to professional basketball players. And uh, I remember... uh, one well-loved seasoned star player who was an outspoken Christian by the name of David Robinson, played for the Spurs. And uh, I think I may have read one or two brief articles about Mr. Robinson. I remember watching the NBA Finals series in 2003 between the Spurs and the Nets, and the Spurs won. Robinson went out on top, and he retired that year. Um, And that was about the end of it for me. I in no way patterned my life off of this man that I had chosen to be my hero. I certainly did not attain to any great level of basketball success. And I don't really even know how solid theologically David Robinson is. But I can list some men who I do look up to, or I've patterned my life after or tried to, and learned a great deal. Richard Cruz, my grandfather. Ron Cruz, my father. Phil and Brian Cruz, my uncles. Uh, Bill Van Meekren. Dwight and Andrew Zeller. Jeff Pate. Mike Wachowski. Brent Iden. Kevin Day. Women as well. May Cruz. Beth Cruz at the top of the list. I think we may buy into a prevalent notion that if our decisions or our thought processes do not come from somewhere inside, from the heart, and rather they're informed externally that we're somehow not being true to ourselves, or that we are somehow brainwashed. To the contrary, the Bible presents example, influence, uh, imitation, these things as Integral to the structure of the covenant family of God. 
Psalm 78, 1 through 4. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders He has done. In Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So imitation, emulation, example is, is, is a critical part of the Christian life. This, as I mentioned, is Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. Uh, and this is the only recorded speech that we have in Acts among many speeches that is addressed exclusively to a group of Christians, which means that it sounds a whole lot like the epistles we have of Paul, because those are also addressed to Christians. Now, in a farewell address, uh, the things that are most important, the most mission critical, uh, the most urgent, they come to the fore. The cream rises to the top in those kind of situations. And Paul begins this address by drawing their attention to his own example, his own life. And he doesn't have to prove it to them that he's been a good example. Rather, he says, you yourselves know. It's already apparent to them. And what do they know? They knew two main things in this text. One positively stated, the other negative. They know first how he lived among them, serving the Lord in verses 18 and 19. And secondly, in verse 20, they know how he did not shrink. He did not shrink. So we'll consider the pa- this passage under those two headings, the, the transparent and the, uh, the transparent life of humble service of Paul. And then uh, secondly, his uh, refusal to shrink. And before we look at those headings, we need to work on a little bit of prologue. Uh, we left off last time in Troas where Paul had raised Eutychus from the dead. He encouraged the church there at Troas. Um, and before we discuss Paul's meeting with the Ephesian elders, we need to get him to the meeting at Miletus. So a little bit of prologue here. Uh, So again from verse 13, But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. When he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came the, uh, the following day opposite Chios, And the next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. So uh, it's about, from Troas to Asos, it's about 20 miles of rocky uh, mountainous terrain across a a peninsula as the crow flies. But it's about 38 miles winding road, so it's a significant walk. And Asos is a beautiful place. It's still uh, a vacation destination overlooking the Aegean Sea. We don't know why Paul decided to walk. Uh, perhaps it was cheaper to go that way than by boat. Perhaps he forgot his Dramamine. Uh, perhaps he wanted the solitude or he just liked walking. He surely did enough of it in his lifetime. 
from Asos. They sailed southward along the western coast of what's modern-day Turkey among the islands there, and they land at Miletus, a port city about 38 miles to the south of Ephesus, again as the crow flies. And why does they stop at Miletus? In verse 16, 4, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, it wasn't that he didn't like Asia anymore. He didn't like Ephesus anymore. Actually, to the contrary, uh, he was worried he'd get stuck there because he liked them so much. I remember when we I grew up in Gallup, uh, New Mexico, for a while, and my dad grew up in that area. And when we moved away from there, uh, we'd go back to visit family, and my parents would be very strategic about who they would tell that they were coming because there's hospitality constraints on a person's time. This is something of what seems to be going on here. As Paul's nervous, he'll get stuck in, in uh, Ephesus, which is he's already spent three years there. He's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. We don't know why he wants to get there so urgently at that time. Uh, I think A.T. Robertson and Calvin both have good perspectives on it. Robertson says basically that the presentation to the Jewish Christians at Pentecost would have had a more profound impact. And Calvin similarly says Jerusalem would be full and that this symbol of the church's ethnic unity would be made loud, would, would make the loudest statement. Because you remember the gifts to the people at Jerusalem were from all of these different Gentile churches. They were sending relief to the church at Jerusalem during a famine. So Paul was in a hurry, but he thought it was worth staying several days at Miletus so he could speak with the Ephesian elders. This is important to him. In verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So it's about from Miletus to to Ephesus and back is about a hundred and twenty mile round trip. It's thirty eight miles directly, but there's a big uh, uh, what is it called a gulf in the way. So they have to go around the Gulf of Lemos, and so it's a sixty plus mile journey one way. Um, so it's at least a four day wait. <laughs> for them to retrieve the elders and bring them back to Miletus. Now he called for the elders, and it's clear that in Paul's time in Ephesus, he had spent time setting up the church, setting up the structure of the church, which is his custom. We read back in Acts 14:23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom... They had believed his instructions to Titus in Titus 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Um, so the elders in the church were, were served an important office, a certain role. The elders of the church are tasked with the spiritual oversight of the church to shepherd the flock of God, which Paul says in, in this, this uh, speech, that, that was purchased with God's own blood. And this whole section, this whole scene conveys a sense of urgency and importance of Paul's message that he would spend the time, despite his hurry, to call for the Ephesian elders and to give them this message. 
So that brings us up to the message itself. And again, we'll look at Paul's, the first portion of Paul's message under these two headings, a, a transparent life of service and a refusal to shrink. So in verse 18, when he came to the, they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So again, you yourselves know already. His example is apparent. How I lived among you. Paul frequently recognizes his own role as an example in the church. Just a few examples of many. 1 Corinthians 4.15 For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. In 1 Corinthians 10.32 Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 4.9 What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. <coughs> so Paul was an example among the Ephesian people. Not only that, but he, he sets out uh, the principle among the churches. This is far from a sort of uh, follow your heart, chart your own course, captain your own soul mentality. He presents this cascade pattern from Christ to the apostles, to the mature, to the whole church. We're to imitate one another insofar as we imitate Christ. I would say no passage in, in Scripture has more directly informed and challenged my understanding and execution of the office of elder than Acts chapter 20. But this passage is valuable for every member of the congregation, qualified or even contemplating eldership or not. Because first of all, you need to know what to expect of your elders of, and of church life and of men called to lead, lead lives worthy of emulation. And also because of this, this principle of cascade emulation. Remember that all of the qualifications for elder that are listed in 1 Timothy and Titus are just basic Christian character virtues that we're all supposed to have aside from the ability to teach. So generally what is good for the elder to know and do is good for the whole congregation and church to know at some level. <clears throat> so in the New Testament... And Paul, in particular, presents the Christian church as a fellowship of believers nourished and knit together and joined together with the head, growing with a growth that is from God. So certainly it would be foolish to say, I'll go it alone. Not, not only because we need examples for ourselves, but we are also called to be examples for others. Hebrews 5 says, by now you should be teachers. 
Titus 2 says older women are to teach younger women. There's an expectation here that we're supposed to mature to a point where we can be examples to those who come after us. Now, Paul, um, he categorizes his manner of life and example under a description of this single phrase. He says it's serving the Lord. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So Paul's ministry is to people, but it's first and foremost, in his view, a service to the Lord. He's serving the Lord. In Acts 9, his, his own call, 15 through 17, but the Lord said to him, go for he, <clears throat> to, to Ananias, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he, much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So this is his whole mission is to fulfill this calling as an apostle of Christ. And the Ephesian elders likewise have received a calling, a post to occupy, a race to run, a, situa- a station to man, an office to execute. It's similar, I always think of, of the end of Colossians when Paul is, is closing the letter and he says, Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. It's a, it's a calling, something that he's supposed to fulfill, to serve the Lord in. And it's something to keep in mind as, as elders, um, that the call is to shepherd the flock of God. and It's a primarily a service to the Lord. But no matter what our calling is, this is a mindset worth emulating. In the most lowly position in, in society to the slave, Paul says in, in Colossians 3, the bondservants are slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. <coughs> Paul here, he says he serves the Lord in three things, humility, tears, and trials. In his context and with the combination of these words, I think really his emphasis here is on the lowliness of his estate as he serves the Lord Christ. He's not like so many peddlers of God's word who promote themselves. He's not a a super apostle. He's a lowly servant of Christ. Taking up his cross and following in the footsteps of his master who humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Tears and trials here speak of the anguish of Paul's calling uh, we read in Second Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. This is Ephesus. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
So tears and trials speak of the anguish of Paul's calling. And Calvin says here that his drift is that those to whom he speak may not faint through similar tribulations. Again, there's that example. And that being void of all ambition, in the older sense of the word, they may do their duty carefully and reverently, that they may not only with a uh, patient mind suffer themselves to be despised of men, but that they may be cast down in themselves, because that man can never be rightly framed to obey Christ, whose looks are lofty and whose heart is proud. He wants to remind them of the, the humble state of being in the service of the Lord, just like he does with his disciples when he washes their feet. See a glimpse of this here in a little bit, uh, probably next time. But in chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We're reminded of Christ by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12:1 through 3. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's telling us to to use Christ as an example. This is, I think, important because in our context, the the Bible character as example model of of interpreting the Bible has been way overused and abused, and it's not a good method of interpreting the Bible. But also, let's not askew the principle of emulation altogether because it is plainly biblical. It's a powerful covenantal corporate means of growing up into Christ-likeness. And we're called both to, to follow and to be followed. And the, the Great Commission is about discipleship. It's about training people. So that's that's Paul's uh, his transparent life of, of humble service before the Ephesians. Second, now the second how they know how I did not shrink. This is his refusal to shrink. Verse twenty. I know you know I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. This word shrink means to recoil. Or in this case, probably best means to to keep back or to suppress or to conceal or to to be silent about something. Um, Verse 27, likewise says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I'm reminded of the the little kid's song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm going to let it shine, hide it under a bushel. No! That, that's what it means to, to shrink in this context, is to conceal, to put it under a bushel. Paul refused to hide any truth from the Ephesians that might prove a service to them, and no matter the personal cost to himself. 
And his refusal to shrink or to conceal the word of God is expressed here in three ways, three participles, um, declaring, teaching, and testifying. So first, declaring, this word declaring carries with it a sense of authority. It's derived authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, um, not, not carrying his own message, but delivering the good news of the king. <coughs> He says, I did not shrink from declaring anything to you that was profitable. This word profitable in the Greek means profitable. It means that which is beneficial, advantageous. We'll talk more about declaring the whole counsel of God next time in verse 27. But again, we can't ignore the comparison. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In one sense, the the whole Bible is profitable for us. 2 Timothy 3.16-17, we all know it. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And the temptation of the preacher is to conceal, to hide under a bushel those parts of Scripture that might be perceived as an embarrassment, that that might offend or that might be difficult to understand or that might cause uh, or incite personal attacks on the preacher. And so in this case, the, the sense of Paul's boldness is actually one of thoroughness and clarity. Thoroughness and clarity, I think, is at the heart of of true boldness, because sometimes I think we mistake boldness and brashness, or we mistake true persecution and suffering with self-inflicted disdain. On the one hand, as we read earlier, Paul does not want to give offense to anyone. He wants to please all men that he might save some, but never at the the expense or the uh, uh, of the elision or the obfuscation of a single jot or tittle of God's word the thoroughness of Paul's declaration was plain to all also plain was his teaching he said he was teaching them in public from house to house uh, in public and from house to house <clears throat> Uh, dis- teaching is distinguishable from declaration. Uh, teaching is instructional. It's training. It's the, the transmission of knowledge from one to another. Fulfilling the Great Commission is a process of creating disciples, of, of creating learners. So instruction is a very important part of making disciples. And training here takes place, he says, in public, public ministry, uh, evangelism, corporate worship, but also in private, private ministry from house to house. Calvin said that common doctrine will sometimes wax cold unless it is helped with private admonitions. Because discipleship is meant to be to be comprehensive, to be holistic. It's supposed to be integrated. It's not just meant to be one day uh, out of seven. 
in our in our time and place as a whole we've lost much i believe in this area in the church we we've allowed the tools used by our our reformed forebearers for teaching and instruction to grow rusty from disuse a regular visitation calling upon the elders for wisdom or when sick uh, family worship catechesis uh catechism for young people and adults I just remember Sinclair Ferguson saying, the shorter catechism is for your children. The longer catechism is for you. <laughs> Wisdom these days is, is now more scientific and pragmatic than spiritual. And the, the same is true for physical healing. Spirituality is more experiential and less intellectually rigorous. Deep thought is for mathematicians and physicists. Surely we don't apply our minds in any formal instruction about the things of God. Those things are are felt. Those are intuitive. To the Ephesians, Paul's emphasis on instruction was plain. Did did he not spend four hours a day for, for most days out of three years lecturing in the hall of Tyrannus? <clears throat> that's not only teaching it's also and not just training but it's also testifying he says it's not as though we're going to educate people into the kingdom of God verse 21 he said he's testifying both to Jews and Greeks <clears throat> I like again Calvin here is very helpful men are not only to be taught but they are to be constrained to embrace salvation in Christ. I like that. Not just taught, but constrained to embrace salvation in Christ. And to addict themselves to God and to lead new life. Paul did not shrink in testifying, in constraining the consciences of his listeners. In fact, it says that he... he applied the same constraints across the board to whoever he was talking to, to Jews and to Greeks alike. And namely, those constraints are named here as, as repentance and faith. A call to repentance and faith. Of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So instruction... Rigorous instruction about the gospel, about the the finer points of the theories of atonement, uh, the details about the Trinity, uh, the hypostatic union, Bible knowledge. This is all wonderful for the Christian. It's all part of the whole counsel of God. It's all profitable. But it's of no ultimate value if there is no accompanying repentance and faith. Knowledge is a wonderful gift, but if souls are not bending the knee and turning from sin, knowledge only serves for damnation. <clears throat> My mom was just telling me about a man who came to their church on behalf of uh, Metanoia Prison Ministries. They train uh, prisoners in, in theological training. And when this man came, he said unabashedly to the congregation, um, I'm here to get you to join us in this ministry. And I'm good at it. 
sure enough, my mom signed up to help. But this, this was Paul. He didn't roll into Ephesus and say, I'm just here to give you lectures and factoids that will stimulate your brain. He said, I'm here to call you to repentance to God and faith in Christ Jesus. This is a ministry that never stopped while Paul was among them. Uh, for the life of the Christian is a life lived in repentance and faith. We never outgrow or move beyond repentance and faith. So I'll just ask you in kind this morning, you're reading good books, you're studying the Bible, you're coming to church regularly, learning and growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and this is wonderful. Never stop. Keep doing it. But are you also communing with the God who is the subject of that knowledge? To, to the point that you know your own depravity before Him with whom you have to do. Is your conscience growing in tenderness before Him? Are you learning daily to, to put to death the desires of the flesh? Are you daily finding sin to be more and more repugnant and the glory of Christ to be more and more compelling? And in the light shown on your own depravity and failures, are you like Adam and Eve who run and hide and cover yourself? Or are you running to your heavenly Father for free grace of forgiveness found in Jesus? Are you learning to rest daily, not in your own performance, but in the perfect work and cleansing blood of Jesus? And are you rejoicing in the victory of Christ over sin and death and the devil? Are you eagerly anticipating his coming? Paul did not shrink from the plain declaration, instruction, and testimony of, of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and neither should we. I'll close with this thought. As a family, we've been reading through Exodus, and God tells Moses when they're Constructing the tabernacle, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And Hebrews 8 makes a big deal out of the fact that the, the tabernacle was only a shadow and that Christ himself is the substance. Christ himself is the pattern of heavenly things after which the tabernacle was fashioned. And is that not true also today? That as Christ builds for himself a substantial temple in himself made up of living stones from every tribe, that he is the pattern. That's why Paul says to Timothy, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So to the degree that, that, that we're following the pattern laid out by the Lord Jesus Christ and, and publicized by his apostles, we have the privilege of being both members and builders in the site of the greatest temple construction project of all time.
Praise God. Amen.